Welcome to Tech Intersect. I'm your host, Tanya Evans, and my life and work exist at the heart of law, business, and technology. Yeah, I've earned a few fancy titles and degrees over the years, but the bottom line is I'm a writer, speaker, teacher, and lifelong learner. And I'm really excited that you've joined me on this journey. So what is Tech Intersect? Well, it's authentic, empowering conversations with really interesting guests who demystify complex topics to prepare you for the future, because your future is now. And it exists where law, business, and tech intersect. Get ready to listen, learn, and leverage. Let's get started. In this episode of Tech Intersect, I talk with Alan W. Silverberg. Alan is a cybersecurity expert and founder of a cybersecurity company, Digijax Group. The expertise of his company revolves around defending against socially engineered attacks. He served on the California Governor's Cybersecurity Task Force from 2014 to 2018. He's a former White House staff person under President Bill Clinton and a former member of the JFK Task Force at the U.S. National Archives. He was also instrumental in analyzing the Democratic National Convention email hack that led to the WikiLeaks debacle. He speaks and advises on the dangers of social media being used for propaganda and has written dozens of articles about weaponized information, which he also writes about in his book, Bots Against Us, the ongoing information war against the United States. This topic is especially relevant in this 2020 election cycle, and it's also a topic I speak about on the Elect Tech 2020 session at South by Southwest 2020 in Austin. Now it's time to listen, learn, and leverage. So let's get started. Today, we welcome cybersecurity expert, founder, and CEO, Alan W. Silverberg to Tech Intersect. Alan has a 25-year background in national politics and technology. He's a specialist in cybersecurity, reputation control and management, and the social media aspects of cyber war prevention. He's also the author of Bots Against Us, the ongoing info war against the United States. And I'm thrilled to have you on the show today, Alan, not only for the information we'll cover, but also because it's a thrill to reconnect with someone I knew back in the day, as they say, in our formative early education years. Welcome, Alan. Thank you so much. I, I'm very pleased to be here, and I agree with both of what you said about talking about these issues and also to reconnect like this. It's fantastic. Excellent. So let's dive right in. Your background and expertise in cybersecurity reputation management, especially on the social media front, it's really formidable and impressive. And so I want you to give the listeners an overview of your credentials and also what led you to be interested in this area of technology and business. Uh, thank you. Um, thank you for the kind introduction. I started Digijox about 10 years ago because I recognized I was already in the internet space and had been working both as a founder and an advisor to other companies. I started to see the negative effects of social media, and I started to see how websites could be used against people, not just for good things. And it really started to concern me. So I came up with, I actually invented some technology as a way to protect. Initially, I was trying to protect the U.S. government from attack. And then that spread to corporations and to individuals. And we really focus on the sort of the esoteric things that people don't always think about. Like how does psychology combine with a cyber attack, you know, end up in information warfare, for example? Um, You know, or what, what happens when you have a cyber attack that actually reaches into the physical realm? 
where a factory gets shut down or a city gets held hostage or something like that. And what we started to see was more and more of these events happening. And in fact, as of you know, 2019, excuse me, over 50% of all cyber intrusions occur through some type of, of social engineering, whether that's email phishing or fake you know, videos or fake phone calls or SMS right. messages that are loaded with malware or any different ways to trick people. But you know, the idea of, of a cybersecurity event being, oh, my computer got hacked, yes, that's true. But then there's this also this other piece about your whole life getting hacked as well. Right. How prepared do you think businesses, and, and actually it's two tracks because what you said kind of led me to some, some thoughts and some concerns that I have for the readiness or preparedness, both on the business side and certainly on the individual side. But from the business and maybe more local government levels, how prepared are businesses and local governments for cyber attacks? Well, let's separate this question. Let's start with businesses. Uh, the, the businesses, all businesses are at threat of being attacked. It doesn't matter whether they are a bank or a small, you know, mom and pop shop or right. some giant multinational corporate. Anyone who's dealing with money or transactions online um, or anyone who has any kind of intellectual property or anything that might be worthy of stealing is on someone's list. So the businesses, depending on the, their size, really depends on how much money they put into the cybersecurity, who they hire, you know, are they bringing in outsiders? Are they, do they, do they just have an inside team? Do they have no one? So for businesses, it's all over the map. It really depends on, on their level of funding and their level of sophistication. Also, it depends on whether they're a publicly traded company. Uh, usually publicly traded companies are going to have more cybersecurity because their boards and their insurance companies are forcing them to. Whereas private companies tend to try to pretend that they don't really have a problem until they really do, <laughs> unfortunately. Right, right, um, right. With governments, it's also all over the map. Um, you know, some local governments have taken very aggressive steps to protect them, their, their citizens and themselves. And other local governments, especially in the United States, have really not taken such careful steps, although I think it, that's starting to change because the, the, this rash of ransomware that's affecting cities is, is obviously got everybody's attention. And so right. nobody wants a hospital shut down or nobody wants a municipal water system shut down. And so no, I, I would hope that no mayor of any city, regardless of party, would want that to happen to their citizens. Uh, yeah, but but from a funding perspective, you know, you have you have cities and states and counties that are 10, 15, 20 years behind in technology, sometimes more. Um, so what happens is when they bring in cybersecurity people or they hire outsiders, they're often layering that newer technology on top of something that's older and not right. By itself ends up creating a whole bunch of new opportunities for someone to break in because the, here's like this intersection of old technology and new technology. Oh, and here's this little weak point. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's the interesting thing with technology as well. There are very few breakout technologies. Much so, I don't know how much you know about my background, but currently I do a lot in the distributed ledger technology space with um, blockchain and with crypto assets and decentralized mechanisms or means for recording information. But, you know, it has its place probably. It certainly is not going to have its place in, in all respects. But I say that to say that when people think of blockchain or distributed ledger technology, it really is just a novel way to access technology that's been around for a long time 
public private key cryptographics uh, cryptography and did digital sig and the internet and peer to peer technology so they all existed before but are created i mean uh, combined in an, in an interesting way i agree and i think blockchain is a very important um, fundamental tool that as as it becomes more and more deployed you know we'll start to see the uses really i think grow dramatically mm-hmm. and and you have to separate the idea of blockchain from something like bitcoin i mean they're really separate right. Um, But I'm actually an advisor to a blockchain company in the fintech space, and I think that there's a lot of promise, but I also think there's a lot of concern, as many blockchain companies are now realizing that their blockchains are are vulnerable to getting hacked. Um, There are are a number of known ways to hack blockchains, and Mm -hmm. um, depending on how they're maintained, really comes down to the people. I mean, so you could have the best and most robust a blockchain out there, but if it's being run by people who are lazy or right. not keeping things up to date, um, you have a real problem. It's such a critical point. And when I think of in particular, like the ICO boom in 2017, and people were doing these astronomical raises with a white paper and a team that was not really from this particular area. And if you don't have the discipline to really and fully and thoughtfully and methodically build and uh, learn and and to do what's necessary to secure protocol, then you know it's it's software at the end of the day, right? <laughs> yeah, and software is digital, and anything that's digital is hackable. Right, right. Now I'm going to have to have you back on to have that deeper dive. We didn't even talk about that, but I have so much to say, and there's so many different areas. So that's exciting that. Um, that you're as excited about the, the potential, but also I always take a very sobering approach to it as well. I teach blockchain in the law at my law school and I built our professional certificate program. And I'm, I have my own personal views, but I want the next wave of lawyers and the next wave of business professionals to at least have the conversation to be able to discern what would be appropriate under what circumstance is a garden variety database. Okay. Or, is there something interesting about this particular use of the technology? Or I think it's or, super important for, yeah. for anyone, whether they be lawyers or, or anyone in medicine or in, in, okay. you know, um, in, in business to understand what a blockchain is because it's an immutable record. And if you use it correctly, yeah. it means that you're never losing data even if there's some sort of a data outage. It mean, you know, if it's used correctly, it means that you're, you know, everyone else can see your changes. <laughs> Right. Um, right. <laughs> um, so from a research perspective, it's fantastic. Or for, for locking down real estate, for example, you know, instead of a multi-state computer system, having a, a blockchain, you know, involved in a mortgage was probably makes a lot more sense, actually. Right. Um, right. But uh, the, the problem, I believe, and I think this is true with cybersecurity and most technology, you get to a level where, you know, there's a level of expertise that you need to have to, to do well at this. But then to be able to turn that expertise around into simple language and simple causes of action for people to understand are two completely different things. And most technologists, as good as they might be, really fail at being able to explain their technology in any coherent way. And so I think that has led to 
you know, a, an a explosion of, of problems with cybersecurity because basically people are led to believe that things are safe. My smart TV mm. is safe because I bought it from a known manufacturer or, you know, my, uh, that I can hook up my thermostat to my toaster because it's coming <laughs> from a company with billions of dollars behind it. So obviously they're putting some thought into security, but really they're not. <laughs> Right. And that gets to the, this idea of trust, right? We have these trusted parties who they have the goodwill and reputation in a name, but and, and the, some of the biggest names, as you are well aware, and you've done a lot of speaking engagements about some of the bigger hacks. And yeah. talk to us about cyber concerns that the Internet of Things has ushered literally into our homes. Well, I've, I'm on record of this. I've written several blog posts about this, so I'm, I'm not going to back away from my own words. i believe that the idea of security on the, on the IoT is basically non-existent. Mm-hmm. It's really the internet of non-security. The, there's a number of problems, um, but the main problem is that most of these companies have made a rush to market without taking any effort to secure their devices beforehand. And, and then afterwards, they'll say, oh, well, you communicate with us through an HTTPS server. <laughs> Yeah, great. What about the other 16 layers in your tech stack? Mm. And um, that's problem, problem number one, is this sort of rush to market. The second problem with IoT, and this is really a huge problem, is that many of these devices are modeled after the same microprocessors, the same boards, the same chips, and they're coming mm. out of five or ten factories out of China, and maybe one or two in other countries. And so what you have is... 80 or 90 different companies selling all these different products, but really the guts of these things come out of these five or 10 factories. And there's, again, at that factory point, there's no level of security. There's nothing, there's no effort to build in cybersecurity components other than some sort of default password, which anybody can look up on online. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. there's websites like Shodan where a hacker or anyone can go research, you know, what's out, what's out there, what devices are connected. What IoT devices are connected, for example, at that facility? You know, I gave a speech to the U.S. Army a few years ago about about satellites and ground station security. And one of the main problems, I mean, there's a lot of problems with satellites and ground stations, as you might imagine. But our whole lives are caught up with satellites now. I mean, everything you do, whether it's banking or healthcare or, you know, every time you use Google um, or your cell phone, there's a satellite involved. And so there's that data flowing back and forth between Earth and space, you know, every second about all of us. And the problem is that for a long time, most of the manufacturers of that gear never put a lot of thought into cybersecurity. It wasn't until recently that they were mandated to do that. And so Mm -hmm. we're all reliant on these technologies that we don't even know, you know, if the people making them know if they're secure or not. So that applies to IoT, that applies to satellites, that applies to connected cars. You know, I mean, I love it when people say to me, oh, my brand new car is, you know, it's unhackable. Mm -hmm. Really? <laughs> like, who told you that? <laughs> and so I think and that people- the IT space creates a, a very dangerous notion. On one hand, it's saying, welcome all these technologies into your home, into your lives, your car, your office, your, your job. It makes your life easier. It makes you all connected. It's all happy. <laughs> but then the downside, <laughs> like the dark side of that is all the dystopia and the depression and the, the disengagement from real life that it, it causes people staring at their screens instead of walking down the street and talking to people. And, mm. you know, I think that we've, as a, 
as someone in technology, we've definitely gone too far overboard now. And, and I'm glad to see things like vinyl records reappearing and, and I'm glad Amen. to see bookstores reappearing because I think we're missing a, a very important part of our lives when all we do is stare at screens. We hope you're enjoying this edition of Tech Intersect. Our conversation will continue in a moment, but first, a word on an exciting opportunity. The Tech Intersect podcast is released to the public every Friday, but as an Advantage Evans member, you'll receive first listen access and live Tech Intersect Connect video chats. Premium members also receive a copy of my ebook, The Gen Xer's Guide to Upskilling in a Web 3.0 World, and unlimited access to the video chat replays and bonus episodes. My pro members, ready to leverage what they've listened to and learned, receive access to the Upskilling Self-Guided Course and VIP group coaching calls. So as you can see, Advantage Evans membership adds substantial value to your podcast experience. And there are three ways to take advantage. (laughs) See what I did right there? Of all that the Tech Intersect podcast has to offer. So subscribe now and let's listen, learn, and leverage together. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. And now, back to the conversation. We think, you know, all of our devices are connected and we are more disconnected than at any other time in human history, probably. Yeah. Uh, For sure. You raised some really important and key points. We've talked about uh, businesses and and local governments. Uh, Let's focus a bit on the individual. It uh, it seems that despite having some awareness, I think, (laughs) of the level of privacy and security that we regularly opt out of, and, and maybe that's a... I'm, I'm um, making a stronger point than is really true, but it seems that we are regularly clicking on, opting out of, nobody's reading the terms of service, but have some awareness that for the sake of community and convenience, people are regularly willing to opt out of privacy. Tell us why well, I don't this know, I don't know if it's danger. opting out, because actually the way most of this technology is built, there almost is no way to opt out. If you're using a cell phone, for example, you are broadcasting your your location, you're broadcasting your telemetry, you're broadcasting what altitude you're at, you're broadcasting what what services you're using, what apps you're using, what what websites you're visiting while you're on an airplane, what websites you're visiting on top of a mountain, and multiply that by billions of people a day. Um, you know, just phones. Okay, if you just look at phones, the the, the interaction and the, the the risk that we're all putting ourselves out just from phones is unbelievable when you add in facebook and instagram and uh, youtube and uh twitter and email and connected devices and other ways of, of of sending bad data or sending malicious information it becomes pretty easy to understand how one person who accidentally clicks on a link in facebook 
suddenly can infect their entire community. Absolutely. And and you really have to look at how influenzas are treated and how outbreaks of infectious diseases are treated. And we have to apply the same type of broad level response to cyber. And right now we don't have that. So this takes us even to, and kind of connects the dots leading up to questions about your work, particularly with bots against us. Because as we're talking about individuals and being one infected link away from infecting an entire community, online community that can transcend easily into the physical world as well, there's this clear and present danger to the future of security of our most trusted and revered democratic institutions and politics and business and law. So, so talk about that transition that led you to write Bots Against Us as well. Thank you for that. Yes, I agree with what you just said. I wrote the book accidentally. I, I really did not seek to set out to write that book. I was doing some work online for one of my clients in 2000, uh, late 2015, and I started noticing some things with regard to Bernie Sanders and, and Ted Cruz that seemed really weird in terms of the bots that were being used. And I started following it very closely. And all of a sudden, all these Bernie Brothers bots started following me on Twitter. And I didn't, mm. I never once expressed any interest in Sanders. I had never, actually never mentioned him. And so mm. when I followed one, and all of a sudden, hundreds of them started following me online, that became very suspicious to me. And I started, I basically started tracking it. And then in March of 2016, somebody at the DNC reached out to me regarding a potential hack that they were afraid that they had. And they wanted me to review an email that had been sent in to someone at the DNC. It turned out that this is the email that was sent to John Podesta that triggered all of that stuff. And unfortunately, they sent it to me after he had already opened it. And, and, and they were trying to get from me, would I have clicked on this link or not, basically? You know, mm-hmm. was it a real, did it look fishy or not? And um, so that really kind of put me right head on into, uh, this is, there's something really wrong here. And then uh, literally a month after that, right when Donald Trump started to, to, to wrap up most of the nominations, but before he actually got the full nomination, before he was the nominee, uh, but it was clear that he was going to become the nominee, All of a sudden, in one day, pretty much almost all of these Bernie Brothers bots flipped, and they suddenly became Trump bots. Interesting. And I I literally, I happened to see it online on my mobile phone. I wasn't able to capture it all because I was traveling that day. And, and, and so I wasn't able to take screenshots of like, well, here's like the one from before and here's it. And suddenly they're all Trump supporters. And and very vocal and very you know loud. Um, right. And so we really started tracking that. And I started getting I started getting some tips from other people about some other things dealing with Russians. And um, we started really looking very carefully at it. And what I started seeing, which was scary, was the timing of tweets that was coordinated timing between the Kremlin, Putin's media supporters, Trump and his media supporters and his family. Within seconds, these groups, these disparate groups across eight, 9,000 miles across the globe were in timing coordinating tweets. Now, I don't know how often you use Twitter, but you have to really put a lot of thought into that. To do it once is hard enough. To do it regularly with 20, 30 tweets a day, um, you have a real sophisticated operation at that point behind that. And it was very obvious to me that that was what was going on. 
so basically the, the short story of my book is I spent a lot of time in 2016 probably annoying everyone who knew me <laughs> um, and yelling as loudly as I could. Uh, we were under attack that this that we was not just the DNC emails. It was we were under this widespread cyber attack on our election systems, on our voting systems, on the state chairman and chairwomen of the parties, on, on the parties themselves, and on all of us through these bots and through psychological right. operations that were being commenced 24 hours a day onto all of our devices. And it became impossible to tell the difference in late 2016 between real and fake websites, real and mm -hmm. fake social media accounts. And I know everyone I know, Democrat or Republican, lost a friend or two during that election because instead of being able to have a civil discourse and discuss whether someone's points are right or wrong, suddenly it devolved into race baiting, yelling, screaming, you know, and which was a big part of Russia, what used to be the Soviet Union's long, it's called the long game. You can, that's what right. it's actually called. Their, their process of using different types of disinformation and propaganda and, and different types of mediums to deliver the, that. So they took their old, the Soviet Union took all of their decades of propaganda and, and manipulation and put it into the digital age. And they've been using artificial intelligence to pump it up. And, and, and they got the Trump people, at least some of them, and I'm trying to say this non-politically because I know that really comes mm -hmm. off as like a political thing. But I'm trying to look at this from a cybersecurity perspective. There are traitors in this country right now who willingly worked with a foreign country to overthrow an election. Now, and, and they did it through all these different means. Right. Fake websites, fake social media accounts, actual hacking of the DNC, actual hacking of the RNC. The RNC records have never been released, but we do know that they were hacked. Um, in fact, right. that came out in the Mueller report, and that also came out earlier on. And we also know that all 50 states were at least attempted to be hacked by the Russians at the state election level, the election uh, machine level, at the election uh, vendor level, you know, and all the way down to like counties and cities. So this was sure. a widespread effort by the Russians. They put millions of dollars into this. They had probably thousands of people total between the internet trolls and the military people, GRU and the internet, uh, the intelligence people in the FSB attacking us. And in fact, they are still attacking us in part with their puppet in the white house, but in part with this ongoing, you see this cavalcade of Russian propaganda pouring out through mostly right wing conservative media. And the long game, as you mentioned, has played into the, where we are right now. This is certainly sure. not something that happened overnight, but a methodical attempt that has, has penetrated our, our and most so revered the, institution. The real point of my book is that not only were we attacked in 2016, but this is an ongoing situation. It is, it is an act of war, for lack of a better word. There's, there's no other. It's a costas belle. I'm not a lawyer. Okay, but having some experience in the government in an earlier life, I know that earlier administrations would have treated this like an act of war. Any yeah. other president would have responded like this was an act of war. The military considers cyber attacks as an act of war. Um, there is no, there's no delineation in the Pentagon between being cyber attacked and being attacked by a bomber overhead. So for them, it's the same. And that's one of the reasons why you don't see the U.S. government deploying a lot of the cyber resources that we have because they consider it to be an act of war.
I see us um, coming up close to time, and I want to leave listeners with some key takeaways that they can consider as they engage on social media to be aware of. And it gets more and more difficult every day, (laughs) deep fakes and how to like when somebody follows you for the first time and they have a bunch of numbers after (laughs) a, a purported name that appears to have just opened up that day with a very clear and decided, you know, political point of view. Like, what are some of the things people can do? I mean, you just, well, you just called it out right there. But I mean, if you, if you have a comment, if there's something like it's, it's common sense in some ways, if you're walking down the street Mm -hmm. and you feel something weird behind you, you look behind you and there's some weird person. It's kind of the same thing. (laughs) Um, You know, if you have a strange feeling about someone who's following you, you, there's no reason that you need to let them follow you. You can block that person right away. You know, so I say, number one, don't just let everyone follow you. Like, actually look at who's following you and and block the bots and block the accounts that are selling porn or the the accounts that are pushing propaganda. Start there. If you start there, then at least you're you're giving yourself a fairly level playing field. You're still going to be dealing with (laughs) some weird players. But if you just let everyone follow you like willy-nilly and then all of a sudden you're kind of going, well, well, gee, what's going on here with all of my mentions and comments? (laughs) Right. Um, Well, that's why. That's, That's part of it. On Twitter specifically, people have to be very careful of what lists that they are put on. Somebody who does not follow you could put you on a list. The list is public. And often these lists are named in very malicious ways. They're designed to harm the people on the list themselves just by being on the list. So the only way to to prevent that is to actually block that account. So people have to, on Twitter, have to go through these lists and sort of see, you know, who's associating them on these lists and take themselves off. Facebook doesn't have anything like that. However, Facebook does, you know, has obviously been implicated very heavily in all this stuff with Russia. They still are. In fact, they recently made some decisions that said that they're not going to stop uh, politicians from running fake ads. So to me, that says, um, actually, I actually canceled my Facebook account. As much as I enjoyed, you know, connecting with people, I will not allow my family and friends to be violated like that. So I shut down my account. I think that Facebook, people have to take with a real grain of salt everything they see on Facebook. It doesn't matter who it's coming from because it could be a fake. It could easily be a fake account on Facebook. And I think that people have to ask themselves, like, well, why is this person engaging with me on this specific issue at 3.42 in the morning? You know, like, where are they coming from? And so what I often have learned how to do is start, I mean, I kind of look at how they use English and I don't mean to... I don't mean to be pejorative and I certainly don't mean to put down people who may not have a higher level of education or whatever. And I recognize that, but you can tell the difference between an uneducated American and someone from a foreign country who might be highly educated, but still doesn't really know English that well. Right. That's a great point. Uh, and so a lot of times it comes down to things like decimal points and commas, uh, you know, in numbers, um, you know, in the U S we don't put commas in numbers, but in Europe they do. There's just little things. And oftentimes, if you start to scroll down the, t- the timeline of someone, you'll see something that will stand out immediately. Often it's a picture or it's a link to something in a foreign language. Because <laughs> right. after time, what happens is they get lazy and they forget the, which account they're on or whatever, and they put out something else. You see a lot of these fake accounts that are sports-oriented, and they try to become a, a local sports fan, you know, that I'm a, I'm a Philadelphia Eagles fan or I'm a – I'm a Washington Redskins fan and die hard and big picture of the picture team on, you know, 
but when you start to see that you know what's what they're talking about, it's really a political thing. But they're using that as like a cover, right? Um, but the big thing, I don't know. And I said I have I have teens, so I'm very careful with my kids and how they are online and who they're interacting with. And you know, the the basic thing that I've said to my children, which I think is very important for adults, is is really you shouldn't engage with anyone online unless you know who they are. Mm. And I mean, I don't mean you know who they are like. Justin Timberlake, I mean, like, <laughs> you know the person. Otherwise, right. don't engage. It's different as an adult. Obviously, you have to make different decisions as an adult. You know, there might be business reasons, too. There might be political reasons. There might Maybe you're trying to pitch your book or your TV show or, or whatever. But as, as for kids, the basic rule should be you're not friends with anyone unless you know this person from sports, church, synagogue, school, you know. And, and that has helped my kids keep a pretty – clean they've never been hacked or they've never had any type of cyberbullying because of that those are really really strong points and i am in particular concerned with younger people but it really is impacting all of us in a way that is really transforming the nature of the way we communicate the way we exercise trust in a, in in community our online communities and offline as well it'll be really interesting and interesting is an understatement i can't even find the proper word to uh describe where we are headed but i know that we are at a pivotal point in humankind and with technology technology largely is a tool as you've said how we use it how people use it for nefarious purposes or for good will determine where we go at certainly as citizens within this country and far beyond. Well, I think, um, I any, think final words? any digital tool has two sides, unfortunately. Every right. tool does, right? But but these digital ones, the, the, the dark side often is a much sharper side. So keep this in mind. Thank you so much for sharing this much information. Um, this time actually flew by, so I definitely want to have you back to uh, unpack. I'd be happy to. I'm thrilled stories. to have been included, and thank you so much for, for inviting me. Web 2.0 ushered in the social connected web. The internet and digital technology are now integral in how we live, work, transact, communicate, and play. Such powerful tools, but like all tools, they can be used for good or tremendous harm. All businesses are at risk of being attacked from the Fortune 500s to the mom and pop shops. Governments are at extremely high risk as well. And one question is, will blockchain be a saving grace? There's a lot of promise, but also a lot of concern because blockchains are also vulnerable to attacks. And as Alan explains, security on the Internet of Things is in serious question. In fact, he argues that IoT security is completely non-existent. We as individuals are also very vulnerable to cyber threats. And then there's the threat to our political system with coordinated political propaganda bots working to create instability in the U.S. elections and the political system at large. So some key takeaways. Don't let everyone follow you, even with a public account. And don't engage others if you don't know the person, especially with odd, aggressive accounts talking about provocative topics. I've included lots of additional content for Advantage Evans members about promising use cases of blockchain and cybersecurity, cyber risk and the Internet of Things, fighting deep fakes when detection fails, and how kids can be responsible digital citizens and safer online. There's lots of information to consider, so 
Take your time to digest the information. And until next time, continue to shine. Stay in touch with host Tanya Evans via your favorite social media on Twitter at at Tech Intersect and on Instagram via the handle Tech Intersect. This podcast has been produced by Stephanie Renee for Soul Sanctuary Incorporated.